It's Dr. Stu's podcast, podcast number 68 for my friend, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Brian Whitman. We are a team here as we get together once a week, twice a week to bring you Dr. Stu's podcast. And we have podcast number 68. Only 32 more to go until we can have another big party. Yes. I'm excited about this and I'm proud of everything we've done. I am so happy that you're here today, Brian. I know that we missed last week because... Uh, I was so sick. Yeah, you had the creeping crud, and you're still recovering. And, and, I, I, actually, off, and I was off the morning radio show in L.A. I was off my regular job, and this, I was really had a bad Yeah, flu. and I know you, and I know that you don't go off your regular job unless you are really sick. It's and, true. Right. It's true. So there's a lot of people going around. I actually had a client of mine who has the creeping crud as well. And got so bad that I actually put her on antibiotics, which I don't normally do. But Creeping she... crud, not a clinical term, correct? <laughs> Depends. <laughs> oh, it doesn't it's, really? It's descriptive, though. It really does uh, describe what's going on. Anyway, so this weekend, um, because she was uh, having the creeping crud, I, I, I knew she probably wouldn't go into labor because nature doesn't do that to pregnant women. It doesn't really put them in labor when they're sick. So I had the opportunity to sneak away for less than 24 hours and to go see Rod Stewart in concert at Caesars Palace in uh, Las Vegas. It was a great show, great musicians. And uh, it was a time warp back to 1971 in my high school days. You were you were still in, probably in the bassinet at that time. No, I remember a lot of uh, 70s Rod Stewart. No, but I remember a lot of 80s and late 70s Rod Stewart. Now, my favorite would be Forever Young. And you know what? Maybe we'll end the show with Forever Young by Rod Stewart. <laughs> Why do we do that, John? Go grab that off YouTube. Yeah, he sang that song. It was pretty great. It it's was, a beautiful. It was great. It's an anthem. Yeah, and they did a lot of instrumentals with that song, too. They had a great sax player, great guitar player. Uh, they had violins playing. I mean, he had a little orchestra with him. It was it was a really nice show. Caesar's Palace puts on a, a nice show. And, uh, and obviously, you saw this in Vegas, too. How many nights did you stay? Oh, I... Was there? I was in Vegas less than twenty four hours. That's so cool. Right, no poker. Didn't get anything else done. That's okay, That's just okay. went last last minute whim and uh, last minute invitation. Uh, it was a substitute for uh, somebody who couldn't show up. My friend had t- two tickets and her friend couldn't show up, so she called me in the last minute. I just hopped in the car and go. Well, we have a special guest here on episode sixty eight of Doctor Stu's podcast. Her name is Jennifer Camel. Of Los Angeles. No connection to Las Vegas, by the way. Right. She's the founder of Be Back Facts. Be Back Facts, an organization that does what, Jennifer? Well, V Back Facts has a mission, and that mission is to close the gap between what major medical organizations say about post cesarean birth options and what people generally believe. Mm. So so what is the what do people generally believe, and, and, and what myths are debunked? Well, people believe once a cesarean, always a cesarean. And that myth is so ingrained in the conventional wisdom that even people who don't have children believe that. I've sat next to a woman who was 21 years old on a plane. Had never been pregnant? Never been pregnant, not married. And she saw me working on my presentation and she said, oh, but I thought once you had a C-section, you always had to have a C-section. That's, I mean, a, that's what my mom thought in 1972. Absolutely. And another example, I was with a couple who were in their 40s and married, didn't have any children, and they thought the exact same thing. So this is an idea that is so so pervasive that people really think that is the truth. And if- I have a question for you, uh, uh, Jennifer, my dear, because I was born, my brother was born in 1969. He was big, so he was a C-section. Mm-hmm. They couldn't fit him through. Then I came through three years later in 72. I was smaller, uh, but they gave me 
uh, you know, a C-section just because my brother had been Mm -hmm. C-section. Are you saying that at that time in in August 1972 when I was born, uh, a VBAC could have been tried so many years back? Well, just as it is now, that was really up to the individual OB's opinion. Some OBs were performing uh, performing VBACs and others were not. But I would imagine very few were performing them. You know, I don't know the exact statistics. I know that as I talk to parents of my friends who were birthing in the 70s, and some of them, I was really surprised. One of them said, oh, yeah, my doctor totally said VBAC was an option for me, but they ended up having a complication and she had a repeat cesarean. And then other people have the same story as you of, well, you know, I had to have a C-section or my mom had to have a C-section because she already had one. And Uh so I don't know what the statistics are. Yeah, and I'm not sure the statistics really matter in this case. I would just tell you that the motivation for doctors to do VBAC or not do VBAC back in the 70s is completely different than the pressures and motivations that doctors feel today. I mean, there weren't the medical legal pressures. There weren't the the peer review pressures. You know, 1970 was a different era in American medicine, and doctors pretty much ran the show. And if a doctor wanted to do VBAC, no one on the staff was going to be able to tell him he couldn't do it. And if a doctor didn't want to do VBAC, no one on the staff was going to tell him that he had to do it. Um, what's so funny about the VBAC thing is that it got to the point in the 70s and early 80s when the research said that VBAC was the way to go that insurance companies began mandating that women had to have a VBAC. Uh, they weren't going to pay for them to have an elective repeat cesarean section. So they, the, that, that's where, the, where the, again, the third parties and the outside interests began to start to... to use their muscle on medicine and began to change the way we did things. And what happened from that was that because of the initiative that all women had to have a VBAC, we began doing things that we probably shouldn't have done uh, using medicines and using induction techniques that probably caused uterine rupture, which then led to uh, a backlash and the pendulum swinging all the way the wrong way, right. which is why these young women that you meet on the airplane are saying things like, well, once a V-back, always a V-back. Because, no, I mean, once, once a... <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Once a C-section, always a C-section, because uh, otherwise something bad's going to happen. Uh, this is Dr. Sue's podcast number 68. Jennifer Camel is here of Los Angeles. She's the founder of V-Back Facts, an organization uh, that... that uh, You've told us uh, what the organization does, um, but from where do you get your funding? My funding is from offering workshops around the country. I'm a continuing education provider for the California Board of Registered Nursing. So really when VBAC Facts was starting up, our personal assets were funding it. And now it's driven by the profits from the workshops. How can women or couples hearing you on Dr. Stu's podcast call you with a number or with an email address or a website? I'm asking you to just go ahead and plug. Yeah, jen at vbackfacts.com. They can absolutely email a question. They can also connect with me on Facebook. Um, I have a page, vbackfacts.com on Facebook. And that's also a place where people can email me and post anonymous questions because sometimes people want to ask a question, but they don't necessarily want it showing up on their feed for everyone to see. Dr. Stu, have you found that folks here, wonderful people like Jennifer Camel, they are rare? <laughs> well, absolutely. Well, the, the people that go to the passion and the, and the length that Jennifer went to. is rare. Because, because uh, you know, her background is not specifically in the medical field. And Jen, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Because then I have a question for you about, you know, you, you said you do, some, you do some workshops and stuff. And we talked about something that happened to you last week. And I want to bring that up a little bit. But first, tell us a little bit about how you got into this. Because... 
you, you, you didn't go through medical training or midwifery training and come out saying, gee, I want to do VBACs. There isn't information out there. So tell us a little bit. Well, I worked in a commercial real estate firm and was performing geographic and demographic analysis for local, national, and international companies who were evaluating their real estate options. And so in that capacity, I would perform a variety of different analysis for them, looking at crime, looking at employee distributions, drive time, earthquake risk, whatever was relevant to that specific company, and then going back and presenting that information to them. And that was one bit of That was one piece of the pie when they were looking at their real estate options. And so when I found myself post-cesarean and wanted to learn more because it's just my my way of being that I like information. And it was very difficult to find high quality information. When you go online, you see lists of complications, but there's no rates associated. So when you see death, okay, I want to know how likely it is that I'm going to die or my baby's going to die. Rates aren't provided, sources aren't cited. And so I just started collecting information for my own use because I wanted to know what the actual statistics were. And it was, there was a huge learning curve. I mean, I wasn't aware of right. the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. So you were, you were essentially a mom yeah. who had a C-section. Did you think that, did you have reservations about the need for your C-section in your particular case? If, well, or if I well, can ask uh, a personal me, question. You were a single mom who had a C-section. No, no, no. I, I'm married. You're married. Married okay. mom. Yeah. Just asking. <laughs> <laughs> just met you 10 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, she's, got a so, nice, she's got a nice rock on her finger. Brian. Oh, well, thank you. I thank did you see very that. Much. <laughs> so um, my C-section was for single footling breech presentation. And so at the time, I had a certified nurse midwife. I was seeing her at a hospital. And I was risked out of her care when the baby was breech. And I was referred to an OB who was supportive of vaginal breech delivery. But when the baby was footling breech, that was not a position he was comfortable attending. And so we did try an external cephalic version, which is when the doctor tries to manually turn the baby externally. And that didn't work. And so I got my piece of paper with my C-section date. And and all of that is happening over a series of how much time? Well, I think it was at 37 weeks I was referred out... Gosh, I'm trying to think. Maybe around 37 weeks, I had my version, and I was referred out to the OB, and when it didn't work, I got my C-section date, but then I went into labor, fortunately, before my C-section. At, so, this, at this point, Jennifer, were you afraid? I was afraid. Tell, Be- me, tell me why you were afraid. Well, because this was an area that I hadn't looked into, and I had no idea what the risks and benefits were of breech delivery, vaginal breech delivery versus repeat C-section. But what I knew was that I wanted to avoid a C-section if it wasn't necessary. But I had no idea where that line was. Because like a lot of parents, we're relying on the information that we get from our providers. And there is an increased risk of cord prolapse with a footling breech. Um, and there's no going back and changing what happened, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm, so, I'm listening to your story, and I think this is the first time I've actually heard the, the details of your story. And, uh, you know, even in my limited, restricted uh, C-section world, you that is an indication for yeah. a cesarean section. Yeah. I mean, there are true indications for uh, medical intervention, both induction and cesarean section. And, and uh, it's just that we and the Dr. Seuss podcast have discussed over and over again how it's overused yeah. and uh, that people are coerced by giving being getting skewed informed consent, which is one of the beautiful things. And the people that I refer to people to your site all the time, because I think it, it's fair... It, you know, to quote uh, a famous thing, it's fair and balanced because you're not, you don't have an agenda to convince people to have a VBAC. Absolutely and, and not. You, and even at your seminars, and I attended one with you, um, 
you don't that you make it very clear that that's not your agenda. Yeah, it's not because you know there's enough obnoxious people out there who are going to try to no. bully or convince you or beat you over the head with what was right for them and they assume that because that was right for them that everyone has to make that choice. And I don't take that mentality. You know, not everyone likes anchovies. You know, not what is right for one person isn't right for another. I don't like them. I don't like them either. And you know what? Well, I don't every, judge everybody people. Likes, everybody likes curly fries, though, right? Well, okay, yeah, I do uh, like, I curly, like fries. curly fries. Yeah, right. yeah. But if, if it doesn't work out with the husband, shoot me an email. Uh, absolutely, we absolutely. Have, we seem to have some nice dietary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, many a marriages have been made on curly fries. Yeah. I have to say, and and the aversion for anchovies. You could be a first for Doctor Seuss podcast. <laughs> You're funny. You're very funny. You're funny. Well, but, you know, humor. I think humor is such an important thing to interject when we're talking about something that's so serious. Absolutely. And humor really disarms people and it makes people this realize... I, this is how I built my entire career. <laughs> you you don't want to make people cry. You want to make them laugh. Yes. Absolutely. And, and so if you the, make them laugh, you're going to have them thinking about issues. Exactly. And also six hours, which is how long my program is, is a long time. Yeah. And so, you know, even if I'm fascinated by something, when Stu and I were at the NIH... That was, I loved every minute of it, but I can't help but yawn. Can so, I ask you what the cost is of that six-hour program? Well, co- uh, figures range. It's generally about $100 a ticket. Okay. And there's discounts for early bird discounts, couples, and also I offer financial aid for WIC recipients. And all of this for moms, for couples expecting, go to the website for all of this information. The website is? VBACFacts.com. And I should also say the, the seminar also targets birth professionals like doulas, professional labor support, childbirth educators, and then also as a continuing education provider for the California Board of Registered Nursing, registered nurses nationwide can get 6.6 contact hours by attending. Do you ever get a chance to speak to physicians? The only physicians that have attended are physicians who are already on board. Right. You know, they're already, you know, have I... You, have you made an attempt to do to to speak at ACOG or to get a grand rounds at a at a local no, hospital. No, I haven't. I okay. haven't. That's that's something that I would love to do, but again, that comes that couples comes coupled with the credibility, which a lot of people say, "Well, who are you? You're not a medical professional." But I'm not I'm not advising people on how to interpret fetal heart rate strips or how to place an IV. I mean, m- the workshop is very academic, and I'm really just the street sign pointing people to the source for various information. Well, you, Je- Jennifer oh. Camel, uh, before this and and taking all this up you were a real estate manager uh research manager yeah research manager yeah. in real estate commercial real estate okay, yeah. working cool. with companies all right how long did you do that for six years six years but you probably had your eye on doing something here in terms of this uh well i was i was always interested in birth um and even kind of briefly considered becoming an obstetrician but i really loved statistics and math and spreadsheets and Ended up in commercial real estate and loved that job a tremendous amount, but it was just uh, incompatible with having a family. Just long hours, a lot of last-minute projects, lots of dropping everything for the client, and that was just not something I wanted to have with small kids. Yeah, and, and so was your second kid a VBAC? Yes, okay. yes, he was. And how did that go? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's it's an entirely, I mean, I had a very smooth VBAC and mm. it was just an entirely different experience to be able to get up and go to the bathroom on your own as opposed to having a catheter for 24 hours, uh. to be able to immediately like have a glass of orange juice and eat some scrambled eggs. I mean, after my C-section, I um, was asleep for many hours and then I woke up and thought for sure I would want to devour 
pad thai and it was sitting in front of me and I was nauseous so and you, being you, able to walk was really hard even cool. weeks after the C-section. Did you meet any resistance uh, from your practitioner or the hospital for your VBAC or did you go to a, had your kid in a VBAC friendly environment, VBAC friendly time? Um, I had my child at home. I had a home VBAC. She had a home VBAC. Yeah. Which is not the choice for everyone. So I guess and there was not a lot of resistance. Though. No, there wasn't a lot of resistance. Um, but you know, as I and that's another hurdle that I come across because people again assume because I had a home VBAC, therefore my agenda is to convince everyone to have a home VBAC, and Look, it's not. Jennifer uh, Camel is our guest. I'm saying it right. You are. You yeah. are. I just love how you keep on saying my name. It's great. Well, I to read radio. Yeah. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. It's, it's my radio. radio. Oh, absolutely. You know, just absolutely. Re- it just cracks me up. Okay. That, no. You know, I'm I'm on the receiving end of it. Now. Yeah. No. I'm just Brian <laughs> Brian Whitman. <laughs> exactly. Of KRLA 870. Yeah. No, I'm Brian. I'm Brian Whitman. About to ask a few more questions to Jennifer Camel, and of course, Doctor Stuart Fishbein may chime in. Oh, I get well. my last name mentioned today. Yeah. This is I like good. That. Let me ask you something. Uh, if uh, I'm going to ask you a question, ask you to answer it. There's three answers. I may not answer it, Brian. Okay, you don't have to. Uh, Jennifer Campbell. You met your equal, Brian. Uh, What would be your top three pieces of advice from a woman or a couple that is pregnant in their first trimester? What would be, with all you've been through, three pieces of advice? Well, the first thing would be choose your provider carefully. And the way that you can do that is... When you say provider, you mean doctor. Yeah, your doctor or 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 midwife. midwife. Doctor or midwife. um, And get a referral through people in your community, whether that's local doulas or childbirth educators, or you can even call the L&D floor and talk to the nurse manager and say, hey, if I want to have a VBAC at your facility, who would be the doctor I should pick? Or who would be the midwife I should pick? And see what their response is. If their response is... uh, And you can gauge from what, what they say if they're really... If VBAC would be a real likelihood at that facility or not because some hospitals are very friendly and other hospitals are less than friendly right so that would be the first thing is choose their provider wisely the second thing would be um, create your support system and whether that is going to ICANN meetings or meet meeting women online that's a huge factor because a lot of times women will want to have a VBAC but there is no social support for that option. And they and that's because maybe their partner isn't on board or their family isn't on board or they don't know anyone in real life who's actually had a VBAC. And so sometimes there's immense social pressure to have that repeat C-section because 90% of American women go on to have a repeat C-section. What would be that third piece of advice you'd offer? That third piece of advice would be don't try to educate people while you are pregnant. And that can be a really hard thing because... I like that. Yeah, because this is your decision it is not your obligation as the pregnant woman to try to educate everyone in your community because the reality is, as we've discussed, the conventional wisdom runs deep. And so you're not going to likely change anyone's mind because unfortunately, sometimes people get not so great information from their providers and then that goes through the community like a virus and then it hits that woman who's pregnant. Mm. Yeah, I would, I would say that it, along the line of number three that you said there, just it just happens because it happened yesterday. Somebody sent me a link to an article in the Huffington Post. I don't know if you saw it, but it's, it was about the ethics of home versus hospital birthing and it's about how, how we should stop judging people. We should stop you know, uh, putting our own judgments on other people and let them decide for themselves and respect their decisions. It was a very nice piece in the Huffington Post. Uh, it, it, there's a link to it on my Facebook page. Oh, okay, um, I'll have to look that up. Somebody sent it to me yesterday, and I haven't had a chance to share it with anybody yet. But it's a pretty good article, and you know, I don't, I don't 
say that too much about a lot of articles that are written these yeah. days. But it was a pretty fair article. And I guess it probably because it takes my point of view is, and your point of view, as you said, is to just leave things alone um, and let people make their own decisions and then respect them. You know, you might politely say something, well, that's not something that I would do, but, uh, but boy, am I behind you. Do I support what you're doing? Absolutely. Right. As ACOG says, two women can look at the exact same information and make completely different decisions. Oh, and 10 doctors could look at the same exactly. client and come up with a different exactly. treatment plan. Exactly. So it's not what's right or wrong with a capital R or W. Ten, bi- 10 businessmen could look at the same uh, spreadsheet and come up with 10 different strategies to fix the thing. Exactly. Right. And exactly. none are right. None are right. Some, some may be wrong, some might but be they're wrong. not all wrong. But and not, some may right. be right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I think it's really important to also acknowledge that just because you personally made a choice, if someone else makes a choice different than you, that has no reflection on your choice. You know, someone else's birth choices have nothing to do with me. Right. So, and sometimes people get really testy, like, oh, well, you're choosing that. Well, I would never do that. Well, what you would never do is really irrelevant yeah. in terms of other people's choices. Well, and also the choice you're making is uh, is probably making that other person uncomfortable. Yeah. Maybe making her, the, the choices that she made, you're undermining them. And people don't like to have the choices they made or their foundation undermined. Yeah. Along, yeah. along that same undermining line, I, I want to get back a little bit. You said something about the fact that you um, are not, you have not really given your, uh, your, your uh, forum to physicians. And Despite the fact that I presented it in hospitals. Right. Well, I wanted to talk to you about that because last, the other night we had dinner with some friends of ours that were in town uh, for a board review course, some dear friends, and it was a fun dinner. And uh, Great you me- food. You mentioned to the fact that, that you had just come back, was it Pennsylvania? You yeah. Came back? You had yeah. just come back from Pennsylvania where you had given your seminar and initially, well, why don't you tell the story because I found it to be uh, very distressing yeah. and, and, and it's the kind of thing where I want to talk about how do we change that? Where do we go from here? Because ultimately... That's what I, that's my goal is to is to change the way VBAC and breach and those things are looked at as yeah. this fear based oh my god disaster waiting to happen yep. uterus exploding uh, type situation so tell yep. us tell Brian well what I was in Pennsylvania when was it a couple weeks ago now and um, was invited by the continuing education providers or coordinators for that facility to come and present there right and um, they were so fired up they're like great this is going to be our continuing education seminar for the year and we're going to promote this workshop on hospital letterhead and we're going to have flyers in all the waiting rooms of our providers and we're going to market it to the two next closest hospitals to us and and um, and so we were really excited. We were like, great, this hospital totally buys in. I had an extensive conversation with the continuing education providers just saying, look, what if the information I share, I share contradicts the policies of your facility? And they said, we're more than willing to update our policies. And I said, excellent. So... Um, I mean, this sounds too good to be true, actually, Well, which, of course, yeah. what happened. So, you know, and I book out quite a bit of adv- in advance. I think this was this workshop was booked probably eight months in advance. And so we were excited and we were doing some soft marketing. And then um, at one point, m- the host, the, one, the my local contact, who was uh, the middleman between me and the hospital, contacted the hospital and someone in administration had gotten word of the workshop and they decided that this was something that they did not want to be promoting. And so they said, the hospital will not be promoting this, period. Mm. So, and it's because it's, 
this whole political factor, which is why I spend the first three hours of the workshop talking about the history and the politics, because right. this is just not a risk benefits analysis. Right. If it was, no one would be freaking out. People would say, well, here are the risks. Here are the benefits. Mom is the one who bears the risks, either in that, f- in that current pregnancy or in future deliveries. And so she should be the one to make this decision for herself. And unfortunately, there is this huge political blanket that sits over the risks and benefits that really skews and perverts the way those risks and benefits are related to women. This is Dr. Stu's podcast number 68. Dr. Stuart Fishbein is there. I'm Brian Whitman. Our guest right here, her beautiful female voice, that belongs to Jennifer Camel of Los Angeles. She's the founder of VBAC Facts, an organization that does exactly what? <laughs> that seeks to close the gap between what major medical organizations say about post-cesarean birth options and what people generally believe. Because there's about a 20-year lag between new evidence and its integration into clinical practice. What do you think, Jennifer, sitting here right now? Right now, what do you think pregnant women, pregnant couples don't know that they, they need to know? They don't know that VBAC is a safe, reasonable, and appropriate option for most women per the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the NIH. And why don't you think they know that? Well, because you see time and time again, people, well, first of all, there's a 90% repeat cesarean rate in the United States. And so when we couple the fact of what ACOG and the NIH say with the fact that about 75% of VBACs, of trial of labor after cesarean results in a VBAC, and most women are interested in this option, and yet we only have 10% of American women having a VBAC, there's a disconnect there. And also when we look at the fact that 43% of American hospitals have VBAC bans, and those are hospital policies that lead women to believe that they cannot have a vaginal birth yeah, after because cesarean Because why, why would you ban something that's safe? Yeah, exactly. And so, so that really taints the community ideals or perspective of VBAC because they think, well, surely the only reason why a hospital would ban it is because it's excessively dangerous. And you're putting this out there for how many different states? Um, well, I travel about once a month, and gosh, in the last few months, I've been in Pennsylvania, I've been in Florida, uh, Northern California, I was up in Sacramento. So the website is? VBACFacts.com. Great. Yeah, and, and you know, what's, what's important about this is, that, is to remember a couple of things. Um, in, it's, pregnancy is, in, is inherently normal, and when a sperm meets egg, you know, obviously some things can go wrong at any point in the pregnancy. But there's not a lot of things that can go wrong that that are that are, are caused iatrogenically, or that that we we interf- that we interf- uh, that that we can affect by our by you know meddling with things. I mean, what, I I didn't say that right. Let me back up for a second. A lot of things can go wrong where we start to meddle with things. But if we just leave things alone, generally pregnancies go well. If people take good care of themselves. They go well, and the, the thought—the thought when we say, say VBAC, it sounds like it, we're talking about appendectomy, or it sounds like we're talking about a procedure. And the truth is, is vaginal birth after cesarean is letting a woman deliver vaginally as nature designed, without any intervention whatsoever. And it's not a procedure; it doesn't require interventions; it doesn't require anything. Is unlikely to go wrong. When it does go wrong, it it it, it rarely goes wrong catastrophically, and. And so whether you do it at home or in the hospital, I mean, ultimately, my own exper- experience is that the success rate of VBAC is better at home because at home, you're allowed to, uh, to labor as mammals are intended to labor, which is uninterrupted and undisturbed. And, and you can eat and you can walk around and you can do those things. But putting that aside, because home birth isn't for everybody, but, the cho- but informed choice is, that's one of our mottos on Dr. Stu's podcast, is that uh, VBAC at a hospital is, is an absolute right 
of a woman. Yes. And she has the right to say no. We have something called informed consent and we have something called informed refusal. And women have the right to get all the information and, and that's true information, not skewed information, and then say, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not going to go that way. He, and we as practitioners have an obligation to support those decisions and not force women by law or by threats. Or oh, Go ahead. Jenny. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, and what you're saying, some people might roll their eyes and say, ah, oh, does that really happen? But ACOG came out with a committee opinion a few months ago talking about elective surgery and saying that historically obstetrics has been a very paternalistic area of medicine where the woman comes in and the male doctor says, this is what you're going to do. Or the male doctor says, here, here, here are the risks and benefits for the option that I want you to select and not giving the mom the, all the information that she needs to make an informed decision. And ACOG says we should be moving to more of a collaborative area, uh, collaborative mode of medicine where provider and woman work together to create a customized care plan for her. Because birth is not one size fits all. And again, Jennifer's website, vbackfacts.org, right? Dot org or dot com. It all goes the same place. Okay. I'll just say vbackfacts.org. Facts. So, go, so GoDaddy has you coming and going. There. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I got I got it all hooked up. Vbackfacts.org, vbackfacts.com. It all goes to the same place. Read up on that. It's great to have you here. Now, let me let me just add a couple things, Brandon. On um, podcast sixty-eight. Oh, on podcast sixty-eight. Right. Let me just add a couple things. Um, the uh, you know the success of Vback. I mean, I I'm in a unique position because I've been practicing at home now for over four years. I've had thirty-one Vback clients at home and they obviously have to be healthy in order to have be having a home birth but i don't consider VBAC to be an illness and everything else about them is normal and 29 of those women have delivered successfully so over 93 percent success rate and that i don't give myself credit for that i give the women credit for that and the and the, my midwife colleagues who've taught me to take my hands and sit on them and do nothing and sit in the other room on the sofa and take a nap when these people are in labor <clears throat> in the hospital um I still think the success rates, depending on the reason you had your first C-section, are close to 70 or 80%. And one of the things that I mentioned at the NIH conference back in 2010 was that if hospitals ban VBAC, and if 70-80% of, of VBACs are successful, then hospitals by law are, are, by, are, are demanding that 70-80% to 80% of women undergo a surgical procedure that carries more risk to them Absolutely. than a vaginal birth. And that is completely unethical. Absolutely. I mean, you're literally exchanging the risk of uterine rupture after one C-section for the risk of placenta accreta after two. Those rates are comparable. And that's something, it's never presented what are those to women. Rates? Well, it's about 0.4%, the rate of uterine rupture after one C-section and in a spontaneous labor. So that's one in labor. 500? No, that's about one in 240, 0.4%. Is that, oh, oh, yeah, one in yeah, 240, Yeah, correct. one in 240. Oh, and so that's that's with a low transverse C-section, so that's a bikini cut, and that's in a spontaneous labor. So that's where a woman isn't given drugs to make her labor start or augmented, so drugs during labor to make her labor go faster. So that's per land in 2004. And then we look at the rate of placenta accreta after two C-sections. That's 0.57% per silver 2006. Is it ever related to women in that fashion? No. It's not. No. And when we look at the rates of maternal mortality with placenta accreta, it's up to 7%. Mm. And a risk of cesarean hysterectomy is over 70%. So and, and a cesarean hysterectomy, as you know, is far more sophisticated and difficult than a 60-year-old postmenopausal woman having a hysterectomy. Oh, it's, it's the morbidity is extremely high from exactly. that. Exactly. Plus, plus you're, again, you're eliminating that woman's ability to carry more children. And especially in families that want very large families, you know, again, the key, and you, you and I have talked about this before, the key to 
to uh, have not having to deal with VBAC is to avoiding the first cesarean section. Yes. So education, again, the things that you said, picking a practitioner, leading a healthy lifestyle, feeling safe and nurtured in your social uh, network, not heeding or giving advice. Other people are very good ways of avoiding the first C-section. Yeah. And, yeah. Go well, cry. We hope you enjoyed the podcast today, Dr. Stu's podcast. You're a great guest. We have, we, unfortunately, we have time limits at Dr. Stu's podcast because I could talk with Jen for... Well, we'll have uh, her back. Uh, we'll uh, have uh, her back at a later show. But uh, on the next one, we're going to have a real cool guest on show 69 too. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, appreciate it very much. Jennifer Camel. Got it all <laughs> he right. that name. Uh, I'm Brian Whitman. Oh, if you want to go to Jennifer Camel's website, www.vbackfacts.com. Yep, check that out. I'm Brian Whitman for Dr. Are we going to have a little tribute to Rod Stewart here? Is that what we're going to do now? Oh, the Forever Young. Yeah, because we talked about um, being Forever Young, right? Yeah. I'm Brian Whitman for Dr. Stuart Fishbein. Uh, we'll get to you next time, and our next guest is going to yes, be great. Rod is, you know, I'm not, I don't have any uh, a stake in the game here, but... He's going to be in Vegas from November 5th through November 23rd. And I think if you get a chance to take your loved one to Vegas, it's a really good show. And uh, uh, I just think, again, I, I'm it so is- appreciative of Jen because she makes my job easier because I, I give advice to people all day long, every day. And uh, when I can refer somebody to your site, Jen, it is very, very helpful for me. So, again, that's vbackfacts.com. And if you have questions, feel free to uh, write me at askdrstu at gmail.com or you can reach Janet at uh, janetvbackfacts.com. Cool. Thanks for joining us on Dr. Stu's podcast. Subscribe on iTunes so you always have the podcast. It's always there. You'll never miss a show. Come back to Dr. Stu's podcast and check out the links and stuff you can check out to read. And the shows are always on Dr. Stu's podcast. So check that out. We thank you for joining us. Join us next time. For the wonderful guest here. Podcast 69 with uh, Anna Paula Markell is going to join us. Yeah, Jennifer Campbell here, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Brian Whitman on the next podcast. I think podcast. we've established that. but <laughs> <laughs> Just in case anyone's confused, yes. you got to clear that on up. The you next, are Brian Whitman. On the next podcast, we have another great, great I guest. I love you, Brian. I love you, too. We have another great guest for you, so stay tuned for that. Thanks for joining us.